0: Episode 294, Building a Center of Excellence, a Playbook for Physician Entrepreneurs. Today, I speak with Steve Schutzer, MD. American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know, talking. Relentlessly seeking value. Lately, several of the Relentless Health Value episodes have focused on digital health companies and their disruptive potential on referral flows of traditional provider organizations. We also talked about other goings on with the potential to encroach on hospital systems and independent docs alike. For example, we've got Walmart getting in a big way into the health clinic business. We've got Village MD and Walgreens teaming up. We've got mergers in the on-site clinic space. There's just a lot of action. But let's talk about what Dan O'Neill called physician entrepreneurship in episode 287. Dan said that now is a fantastic time for entrepreneurial physicians to reinvent the practice model. This is true because many— including Dr. Matt Anderson in episode 292, have said that it's not an entirely safe bet if you're a doc right now to hope that, you know, all the practice changes initiated by COVID, you know, like telehealth, etc., go away like a bad hangover the second this pandemic gets stuffed back into Pandora's box. So there's risk mitigation strategies at play here, but there's also a great opportunity for those who figure out how to legitimately improve patient outcomes in a way that consumers and patients love and that employers can easily contract for. Here's the bottom line. Some, not all, of these newfangled deliverers of healthcare have great marketing and maybe a great net promoter score but effectiveness is less than well-validated. Don't get me wrong, there's a whole lot of providers who aren't sure what kind of results they deliver and (laughs) who aren't exactly delivering amazing and sticky customer experiences. So we certainly can't forget that, as Bob Matthews has said, in the land of the blind, the one-eyed man is king. But what about a physician practice known in a local community that works together to create a center of excellence? Now, that's interesting in this land of the blind. You get all the history and the advantage of being the, you know, in quotes, default care provider. But you also are well poised for a post-COVID future, even in the face of all this disruptive activity. Today, I speak with Steve Schutzer, M.D., Dr. Schutzer is a physician executive for the orthopedic service line at Trinity Health in New England and medical director of Connecticut Joint Replacement. Dr. Schutzer knows a lot about setting up a COE, otherwise known as the Center of Excellence. He knows a lot about how to be a physician entrepreneur, and he knows how to compete in emerging market conditions. My name is Stacey Richter. This podcast is sponsored by Aventria Health Group. Steve Schutzer, MD. Welcome to Relentless Health Value. Stacey,
1: it's great to be with you today.
0: It's a cliche that the enemy of your enemy is your friend. It's also a cliche that payers and providers are frequently not on the best of terms. To create a COE, a center of excellence, it requires a bunch of maybe competitive physicians to team up is one of the impetuses behind a group of generally fiercely competitive orthopedic surgeons to gang up together because as a group, you have more leverage in payer negotiations.
1: Yeah, sort of, Stacey. Listen, this was you know 2006. For example, in 2006, the length of stay for joint replacement was seven days. It quickly became five days and then three days. And As you know now, it's uh, oftentimes an overnight stay. So the payer community was just raking in all of this value that we were creating. And, of course, for all of that efficiency, our reimbursements under fee-for-service were being significantly cut. So you can see that that would create an acrimonious relationship.
0: Yeah, for sure. But now let's take this from the employer standpoint, musculoskeletal costs tend to be a significant portion of any self-insured employer, you know, like up to 25, 30 percent of a self-insured employers overall spend. So now you're getting more leverage. You are now able to handle even more patients for total joint replacements. Does that ultimately drive up costs for the ultimate purchasers of healthcare?
1: There is no better stakeholder in healthcare than orthopedic surgeons to become managers of musculoskeletal care, not in FIFA service models, but with alternative payment models. So, for example, at CJRI, we implemented a bundle payment model in 2009, 2010. It took a year to stand up the bundle payment program, a ton of legal stuff, trying to form this relationship between the surgeons, the anesthesiologists, and the hospital. But we did that, and it kind of, uh, you know, naively at the time, Stacy, we thought, well, boy, the employers and the, and the, and the payers are going to be banging our doors down. Well, that was a naive thought because in 2010, everyone was still quite steeped in fee-for-service. And for years after that, it was like throwing spaghetti against the wall with very little sticking. So things have changed dramatically in terms of the movement to value.
0: Where do you think we are in the move to value? We're kind of doing this before and after dichotomy like well before in 2009-2010 and like now it's a decade later approximately. And people still say that we're trundling along the the value continuum, you know, trying to get more and more to value. Where do you think we are now? Is it still so difficult to get employers to hook up with?
1: No, you know, things have changed, thank goodness, and and it's very very exciting time in healthcare. We started to see some movement in 2018, 2019. And maybe it was CMS's leadership in terms of moving 50% of reimbursements with some connection to quality outcomes. And we started to see some activity. And then COVID hit. And it was this you know, seismic, exogenous shock that laid bare all of the previous recalcitrant and entrenched problems in healthcare, problems with access, affordability, accountability, the antiquated fee-for-service models, it just highlighted all of those problems and, and threw gasoline on the wound. You know, But at the same time, on the, on the positive side, the good news is that never have the opportunities to effectuate change been more omnipresent. There's no question the value agenda is gaining steam and that COVID has seemingly ignited a torrent of innovation coming from many of the sectors. So if
0: you are a group of orthopedic surgeons in Connecticut, you know, who got together in 2010, so, you you know, you're ahead of the game, (laughs) and you figured out how to work together in standardized care, and I'm going to circle back to this, but, you know, got buy-in from anesthesiologists and, you know, all of the ancillary services that are required to put together a bundle. But if you're you in this moment in time, what are you doing now?
1: Yeah, so we're very proud that we've had a bundle now for for 10 years. And as we tell folks who want to implement bundle payment programs, even if you never contract for a bundle, going through the implementation process of launching a bundle payment program will yield incredible unrecognized value. Just going through the necessary care redesign process, what we're doing now, and I think you alluded to that earlier, is that we're moving upstream. And I'm not talking about doing orthopedic surgery. I'm talking about becoming mentors to our primary care colleagues and guiding them in the right direction. You know, bundles are great. They provide employers with what they're looking for predictability, accountability, and transparency. That's great. But healthcare is not going to be solved by bundle payments alone. We're working with a couple of companies now. One of them, I think you know, is Integrated Musculoskeletal Care, moving towards being managers of MSK rather than just providers of procedures.
0: You you said something which I found really interesting, that just merely going through the care redesign process is invaluable. Why do you say that?
1: Yeah, because in order to implement an alternative payment model, call it bundled payments or capitation or shared risk, You have to know your outcomes and you have to know your cost. It demands an end-to-end care redesign process. And ours took a year. Just in doing so, you unfold. Oh, wait a minute. Isn't so-and-so having that done three times? And you start to unleash this innovative process that starts to ferret out all of the waste and inefficiencies built into these old models. And at the end of the day, you can price your bundle accordingly. And you understand what risks you can take, what type of performance risks you can take, because you understand your cost of complications.
0: If I'm an employer, I want to make sure, you know, if someone's going in for a total joint replacement, for example, A, that it's appropriate, you know, like just across the country, I forget what percentage, it's a high one of spine surgeries and joint replacements are deemed unnecessary when they wind up at a center of excellence. So, you know, I want to make sure that I'm sending my employees to a place that not only has good costs, but also has great quality, you know, the whole value equation. <laughs> I'm assuming that what you're talking about here is, is effectively setting up a center of excellence so that you're attractive to employers and, you know, the employers want to send their patients to you.
1: You know, we see second opinions and I look at some of these x-rays and wonder, are they, are they kidding me? So the value of a COE is really unquestionable. The other thing, uh, piece of information that's really important is for every dollar saved by utilizing a COE, for every dollar saved, two thirds was in the quality side and one third was in the price point. So while we spend hours arguing, negotiating over a discount, the real value of the COE relationship is in the quality outcomes. 70% reduction in complications and readmissions. That's where the real value is.
0: COE is is Center of Excellence. So if I'm going to set up a Center of Excellence, a COE, you've gone through the process. How do I begin to contemplate doing so? What are the building blocks that are going to be required so that I can come out and say that my quality is amazing and my costs are, in fact,
1: also pretty darn good? Let me just take a step back, Stacy, and, and uh, I think I mentioned to you that I have the honor of chairing a subcommittee of the Moving to Value Alliance, and a subcommittee is dedicated to building centers of excellence. Coes can be subdivided into procedural-based coes. Prototype, maybe what I do, a joint replacement COE, or a, a condition based center of excellence, such as one that focuses on breast cancer, prostate cancer, or non operative spine.
0: Okay, so two kinds of COEs the episodic and the procedure based. Basically, bottom line, you are being accountable for the outcome of a full episode of care, probably with guarantees, because that's what you know, accountable means. How does appropriateness fit into that?
1: Yeah, that's a great question because let's face it, bundling is great, but it's still embedded in the bundle is a fee for service and by itself does not necessarily reduce overutilization. So at our organization, we have a form which we call the appropriate use or pre-certification form that all our bundled payment surgeons have to complete for a patient's acceptance of the bundle. And in that appropriate use form, the surgeon attests with his or her name that patient X, Y, or Z has failed at physical therapy, non-steroidals, injections, canes, and so on and so forth. Or they were refer to us with such devastating arthritis that none of those non-surgical measures would be appropriate. So that's how we control overutilization. It's sort of an internal peer review that all of our surgeons that are privileged to be part of the bundle payment program are willing to fulfill.
0: And is there a way that, from a data-driven perspective, that can be
1: validated? We were very fortunate to have our program validated by the Validation Institute. You know, it was a rigorous undertaking. They got into our database, they asked for references, and gave their stamp of approval.
0: Let me just make a point here. Dr. Schutzer has a whole slide deck that digs into everything we're about to discuss and have discussed. Like I glossed over big time the definition of a COE. You can go back and read the full definition in its huge glory in this deck. That being said, this deck that will be in the show notes also includes a full accounting of another thing that, Dr. Schutzer, you have spent a lot of time thinking about and working on, which is the building blocks to create a COE. There's seven. And the first of them, the first building block is what is the business model of this whole operation? Do you want to dig into that a bit?
1: Again, CJRI is really a prototypical procedural-based center of excellence. But the rubric that we've created can be used for, frankly, any COE. And it starts with a business model. And, and by that, Stacy, I'm not talking about the various revenue streams for the Center of Excellence. I'm talking about business relationships between the physicians. Are they willing to cooperate? Are they willing to be collegial? Are they willing to standardize care plans? These are the fundamental, the most fundamental building block to the Center of Excellence, without which the likelihood of success, I think, is remote. You
0: know, you say relationships. I hear trust. It's difficult enough amongst physicians, because let's just say I, I haven't heard of many medical schools that have classes in you know how to lead a cohesive team. That doesn't seem to be part of the the curriculum in most cases. So, generally speaking, from I've heard physicians talking about yourselves, so I don't feel like I'm 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 out of school here when I say that physicians tend to be very you know individualistically competitive. <laughs> So, you know, you need trust amongst the individual physicians in order to build this business model, but also amongst other stakeholders, like the aftercare. You know, like if you're putting a guarantee on this and the people that are helping patients, you know, after the surgery or physical therapists or whoever else is involved in this, like there is a, a really high degree of trust. That's going to be required for those who have a financial stake in this to kind of like let go and let other people do their jobs because they're well trusted enough to pull them off without serious oversight.
1: That's an incredible point. It is all about trust, trusting relationships first amongst the surgeons, you know, that looking at each other, wondering whose perspective is more important. And then is a trust between anesthesia and the surgeons. Our two lead anesthesiologists are actually members of our company. They're full shareholders of our company, and they deliver incredible value towards our our outcomes. So they're part of the process. And then, of course, relationship with the hospital. But, But it takes time, and it takes experience, and it takes transparency. So, you know, you're highlighting probably the most central issue as to why this would win or why it would fail. The second element of a COE is a registry, a repository of data. And you know, you know, C. Edwards Deming, the probably the, the father of continuous quality improvement and statistical variance, has many quotes attributed to his name, but the one we like best is "And God we trust, all others bring data. <laughs> but you know what, Stacey, at the end of the day, it's not just data. It has to be actionable data because physicians naturally don't trust data because we've seen data from the payer community. From the hospitals, and you go, What are they talking about? Completely polluted. So it's only through that robust and exhaustive process of, of data adjudication that the data becomes really actionable and can be used to change human behavior.
0: So, okay, we've got two components of a COE that are required. You know, number one is the business model, which effectively is a term to imply the trusting relationships between those who are engaged in the COE model. Then you said registry, which is adjudicated actionable data. What else do we have?
1: The center of excellence has to move towards a primary reimbursement model that is not based in straight fee for service, but one that aligns compensation with quality outcomes and a willingness to be accountable for complications and re Again, for my work as a joint replacement surgeon, bundle payments lend themselves perfectly for that line of business, but for others, it might be a prospective per member per month or capitation or retrospective shared savings model. But some type of alternative payment model has to be the primary source of revenue.
0: And then the, I love a good acronym, TDABC, which is uh, the uh, accounting methodology. Do you, I'm, I'm assuming that's going to be, that's coming up in our list here.
1: TDABC is a remarkable process. It's a cost accounting method. And conceptually, it's quite simple. It requires an estimation of only two things, two parameters. One is the unit cost for pre- performing a transactional activity and unit time necessary to execute that activity. And, and what you basically need to do is sit down with a multidisciplinary team and create these very detailed process maps. And embedded in each segment of a process map are a list of caregivers and how much time that caregiver spends executing their activity, and then finally determining the CPM, the cost per minute. So for example, Stacey, I cost $8 a minute. Our anesthesiologist costs $6 a minute. My nurse practitioner costs about $1.60 a minute. Physical therapist, $1.50, and so on and so forth. And once you start looking at it that way and you can plug and play, you go, wait a minute. Why is the guy who's charging $8 a minute, you know, doing something that somebody for a dollar a minute? So you start to look at reallocating work. You're looking at inefficiencies. But you've got to know at the end of the day the true cost of delivering your product. And then you can figure out how to, how to charge for it. What kind of margin do you need to add on to your true cost?
0: This is, you know, quite the uh, breakthrough for healthcare, care in which I'm going to say a vast majority of the services which are provided, sources say the purveyors of that care delivery have absolutely no idea what the cost is.
1: Now there's companies such as a company that we contract with out of Boston, which really is originally has its roots in Harvard Business School called Avant Garde Health that can actually do this for an organization at a much faster pace. But um, we've done it three times, and each time we just keep ferreting out more opportunities. How do the patient-reported outcomes get folded in here? Probably heard of an organization called ICHOM, maybe the world's worst acronym, but it's International Consortium of Health Outcome Measures. Their mission is is to develop international standardized PROs for 50 medical conditions, and they're well over halfway there. So we've adopted their uh, international standardized set
0: Yeah, And I think it's interesting. And and actually, when Eric Weaver was on the show, one of the things that he said that I thought was really compelling is that like HCAP measures or these very, very generically broad measures... Don't really cut it if you are trying to figure out that the outcomes that really matter to patients that they really have to be condition specific, you know, like someone getting treated for head and neck cancer, for example, is going to be really concerned about, you know, can they swallow, can they speak, which is very different from the outcomes that someone is going to be interested in if they get a knee replaced or or whatnot to really capture them based on exactly what's going on with that patient. Like, otherwise, you're just capturing information that's not actionable.
1: There's a significant infrastructure that needs to be built and recurring costs to manage this data. Is that a
0: way that employers or purchasers are choosing centers of excellence? You know, is one thing that they are looking at are patient-reported outcomes?
1: Employers are looking at. In other words, one of the ways you could see if a surgeon might be intervening too soon, for example, in the kind of work that I do, is if the PROs, if the preoperative PROs are, you know, the 80th percentile, I say to myself, how am I going to make this patient any better by replacing their their joint? In fact, I'll be honest with you, Stacey, sometimes I have patients with two completely worn out hips, let's say, and I say to them, you know, how can I make your life any better when you're still playing tennis, you're still doing, you know, riding your motorcycle or water skiing? So it's not just collecting it, it's how do you use them? And employers are definitely taking note to patient-reported outcomes today, no question.
0: So talk about ISO, which is number five on our list of COE
1: components. What we love about ISO is that far too often in healthcare, when there is a problem, there's finger pointing. Well, Dr. Schutzer did this, or Dr. Smith did that, or nurse did this. It is never addressed as a person problem with ISO methodology, is always a failure of process. If I open the wrong implant, there are seven steps that fail prior to that event. And it is, it's a transformational tool.
0: So let's talk about the seventh element that is necessary for a COE. How would you describe this?
1: Seventh element would be called PFCC, which is the patient and family-centered care. It's a method and a practice. Fundamental to PFCC is a tool called go shadow. And we literally have volunteers that are assigned to the patient that meet them when they come into the garage at the hospital and walk through them through the entire experience until discharge and take notes, looking at the pain points, look at the friction points. So we have now taken our process maps and redesigned them according to what the patient experiences, not what we think they're experiencing. Now that PFCC can be expanded to include things like digital patient engagement tools.
0: You put all these things together and you have created a a, a center of excellence, a lot of work and a lot of cost. Say I am, you know, a fee-for-service doc out there and, um, you know, in anything, pick a specialty, right? I'm a specialist. Most of my income is is fee-for-service driven right now. And I'm doing very well, thank you very much. What's the risk here? Obviously, every business decision that somebody makes has a component of opportunisticness, if that's a word, as well as a risk mitigation component to it. If I'm a fee-for-service doctor right now, and I, I have not explored this at all, where will I be two, three years from now?
1: Stacey, that's a great question. It's a question that excites me. What I'm getting reimbursed in fee for service now for an arthroplasty in dollars is half of what I got 30 years ago. So in real dollars, it's maybe 20% of what I got paid in the late 80s. That's pretty depressing. And, and I try to convince my colleagues, listen, the opportunity we have here is to partner with each other, partner with our, health, with our health systems. And that's the only way for providers to accrue the value that we've created for decades. So as we have become better surgeons, more efficient. Where did all that value go? In exchange for that, we got our fees cut. So strictly from a self-serving perspective, I say, folks, take a look at this. The only way that we can accrue the value that we deserve is through these types of relationships. So yes, it's a ton of work, but there are three drivers. The first motivator is just to do the right thing, the imperative to create a better system. The second level of motivation is that we, you know, we got to keep up, we all have to become better and more efficient at what we're doing. But to me, Stacey, the supreme motivator is opportunity. There has never been an opportunity like this for healthcare leaders, for all physicians to become, not not just participate, but become actively engaged in the value framework and in this transformation. And what's in it for us besides accruing value is regaining the joy of practice. You know, I'm a big fan of Dan Pink, and there's a great TED Talk. It's 17 minutes long. It's called "The Puzzle of Motivation. And when I saw that for the first time, I said, this is why CGRI works. This is what physicians need. And In this TED Talk, Mr. Pink talks about the intrinsic motivators of behavioral change. And they come down to three things which really resonate with physicians. Autonomy, having control over our team, our time, our techniques, mastery. All of us desire to get better and better at what we're doing. That's why we're physicians. And purpose. I think all of us feel that there's some, we became physicians for something better than simply making a live. There's something in this that's greater that really floats our boat. So Restoring the autonomy, mastery, and purpose to our professional lives really restores the joy of practicing medicine. If I am, one of the questions that
0: I frequently get written into the show is from specialists who want to provide value based care of some kind. They have a desire to create a bundle, but their local market either isn't big enough or doesn't necessarily have forward-thinking employers or, or benefit consultants who are even offering to pay a, in a value-based way. What advice do you have for them? How do you begin not only a transformation of your own entity, but then kind of of the marketplace that you're in? Is there a way to lead that?
1: You know, there's this is concept of direct to employer relationships. Well, that really doesn't exist. There is no direct, I can't pick up the phone and call Walmart. There's a cadre of frontline healthcare leaders, better known as healthcare brokers, consultants, and advisors that make this happen. And we're very fortunate that there's a growing cadre of these enlightened frontline folks in healthcare that understand what they need to, what they need from us is product. They need products to disrupt the status quo. You know, there are organizations like the National Alliance Of healthcare purchases that you can reach out to there's the health rosetta these are national players that will help open the doors for you you know for years the employers have said i've heard them say you know providers are tone deaf they're not hearing us i would react wait a minute we've been trying to reach you folks for years where have you been and what we were missing then again is that essential stakeholder that the benefits consultants advisors and brokers that really want to move away from a percent of the premium
0: find organizations that are the champions of this kind these kind of payment models for the employers that that they serve sounds like the most efficient plan there's a lot of technologists vendors who listen to this show i'm assuming that the sales process to work with the center of excellence is for a number of different reasons, different than if I am trying to sell a product or service into a hospital that does not have ISO and TDABC and, you know, all of the different things that you that you discussed and data. What do I need to do? Or what would your recommendation be to me if I'm trying to sell you something? Well,
1: to some extent, the answer to that has become more complicated because we now, CJRI is a service line within St. Francis that is owned by Trinity New England, that is owned by Trinity National. So it's not quite as easy as it was 10 years ago to implement these types of programs because there's a national superstructure around all of that. But we've also made an effort internally to be digital leaders in the digital healthcare transformation. So again, we've contracted with Force Therapeutics for a digital patient engagement platform. We've contracted with Avantgarde Health to be our data analytics firm. You know, we have other types of implant technology, robotics and so forth. So as a service line leader, these individuals, if they have a technology, would reach out to me and I would take it from there.
0: I'm assuming that they would have to come to the table with a certain level of data and a certain also level of knowledge of your business practices because they're going to have to, you know, it's typically incumbent upon those that are trying to like, you know, bring the offering to figure out how it fulfills a need that you may have.
1: That is correct. It's all about data. You know, as you mentioned earlier today of the major buckets of spend, by the employers one of which uh, is musculoskeletal care it can be 20 22 25 percent of their annual spend and the problem is that there are vendors who are working at the margin you know they've got a new way to to do physical therapy or they got a new way to adjudicate a claim but you know the employers are looking for a package they're looking for not one-offs
0: this is the point that i'm understanding if i want to sell something to you steve i need to understand who your customer is that's my takeaway because you serve your customer. So it's not just a matter of walking in and figuring and and saying, "Oh, you know, there's a code for this, so you should use my thing." It's a matter of enabling you to serve your customer better.
1: That's exactly right, Stacy.
0: Where can people learn more about what
1: you are up to? Yeah, so thanks, Stacy. You know, I just want to end by saying that we get invited to speak at various orthopedic meetings and and so forth. And sometimes I'm on panels with folks from the Mayo Clinic and Hopkins and Cleveland Clinic. And then there's CJRI from a small hospital in Connecticut called St. Francis. And the point I want to make is that if 10 competing egomaniac orthopedic surgeons can come together and have a vision to create a world-class destination site, a center of excellence, it can be done anywhere when there's a willingness to commit the resources developing this type of program, even in a smaller community setting. To reach me, uh, Stacey, my email is steve.schutzer at gmail.com. They can look at our website, novelhealthcaresolutions.com, or there is a New England Journal of Medicine Catalyst, December 2019, which outlines our model quite clearly as well. But I've been happy to entertain any email questions from your audience.
0: Steve Schutzer, MD, thank you so much for being on the Relentless Health Value podcast
1: today. Yes, thank you very much, Stacey. It was a pleasure to be on your show. Thank you.
0: Links to everything discussed on the program today can be found at RelentlessHealthValue.com. If you visit the website, RelentlessHealthValue.com, you will also find a complete listing of all of the shows that we have published thus far with leading entrepreneurs and executives in the healthcare space today. Another cool feature is, you know, you can subscribe to the show so that every week the episode is automatically sent to you so you don't have to remember to go to the website to download it. Thanks so much for listening.